Well, 60-some years ago, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones penned words to explain their frustration with the world around them and their experience in it. And in so doing, gave us words to help understand what is so often going on in our soul. Maybe you remember the famous Rolling Stones song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And while those terms aren't always the terms we use, it deeply explains the human condition, our desire to feel satisfaction, to feel purpose, to feel meaning, to find contentment in its fullest forms, often lead to our frustration. We taste it in pieces, and yet we have to go back day by day to the well to try to find it in its fullness. And the human life, if nothing else, explains to us that we struggle to find this very thing that our soul so desperately wants. And yet, perhaps it is true that God has put that in us to continually point ourselves back towards Him. One of the greatest theological reflections was made by Augustine of Hippo, who in his confessions said this, that it is God who has made us for himself, and we are restless until we find our rest in God. Or maybe said just a little bit different, the point we're driving at this morning is that God is good, so you do not have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. To try to get at this truth, of course, the whole of the scriptures speak to the goodness of God, but to get at this core idea of the goodness of God that leads to satisfaction, I want to turn our attention to a pretty famous story in John chapter 4. So if you can copy the scriptures, go ahead and turn there. This, of course, is the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. For many of you, this is a familiar story. For others, this will be new. For many of you, some of the points that we'll raise, you've heard before. And for some of you, these will be new. But hopefully in all of these things, we will find this core truth that God is good. And so we need not look elsewhere for our satisfaction. John chapter 4, this is how the story goes. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining uh, and baptizing more disciples than John. This is John the Baptist, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, uh, a quick geographic lesson about the area of the day. Israel was kind of broken up into three, a little bit more than three, but for our purposes here this morning, three geographic sections, right? So at the north was the area called Galilee, right? Think about where Jesus grew up, right? And the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and Nazareth and all of those places up there where Jesus is hanging around. And then down south where Jerusalem is, is the area called Judea. And in between them is this big sort of, to the Jewish people, wasteland called Samaria. 
And so this geography becomes really important. So Jesus is gaining followers, and he's down in Judea, and he needs to go to Galilee to get away from the, uh, the seeming oppression of the Pharisees. And what he's going to end up doing is going through Samaria. So now he had to, verse 4 says, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, uh, tired as he was from journey, sat down by the well, for it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Well, let's just pause right there for a minute. What we're going to see as this story goes on is there's a, several things that are significant for us to observe that point to the goodness of God. And the first thing that I want to suggest to you this morning that we see the goodness of God is that God pursues us. That God pursues humanity. He pursues his people. And did you catch that verse? I think it was verse 4 where Jesus said, it says about Jesus, he had to go through Samaria. So uh, if you know much about the New Testament world of Jesus, you know that Samaria, Samaria and the rest of, of Israel, they, they kind of didn't get along. They didn't like each other at all. Uh, had a lot to do with some of the exiles previously and some uh, marrying with other nations and there was worship issues but basically they didn't get along. When Rach and I lived in Chicago we realized that the Cubs fans and the White Sox fans, right, they did not get along. They were in the same area but it was just they were completely different people. And this idea, right? So the Samaritans didn't like the rest of the people, and the, and the Jewish people, they didn't like the Samaritans. And for this reason, whenever the Jewish people had to travel from Galilee to Judea, remember the north part and the south part, they would purposely cross the Jordan River, which is the eastern boundary of Israel, and go down and then cross back over the Jordan to go into Judea, simply so that they would not set foot in Samaria, so, if you were a typical Jewish person of the day, and you were plugging in your route from Judea to Galilee into Waze, or whatever your, your happy uh, app is for directions, it is going to plot that course for you, right? That's the course without traffic, right? That's the course without any accidents. But Jesus says something very distinct here. He says, no, I had to go through Samaria, well, he didn't have to because that was the normal path of travel. Right? We've eliminated that already. And so what's happening here is this is a statement of purpose. Right? Jesus is saying, I had to meet this woman. This whole thing is about meeting this woman in this moment. And what you find in, in the genesis of this whole very famous story is a God who pursues us radically. So much so that he goes out of his way to meet us Specifically, it's incredible, isn't it? Now, the book of Revelation paints a pretty famous picture of Jesus, right? Standing at the door and knocking, giving us the, the picture that Jesus is always waiting for us to invite him in. He's present, he's pursuing us, and it's a beautiful picture. But the truth of the matter is, while Jesus is always in that posture, sometimes he actually doesn't wait for you to answer. 
He just invites himself in. Isn't that just like Jesus, right? And this is what's happening with the Samaritan woman here. It's what happens pretty famously with Zacchaeus. Do you remember Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed upon a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And Jesus, when he finally sees Jesus and Jesus meets him, what does Jesus say to him? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over tonight, right? He invites himself right in. And in this redemptive disruption transforms Zacchaeus' life. And the very same thing is about to happen with this woman. Jesus didn't ask if he could come. He didn't send couriers ahead to see if this would be okay. He simply had to do it. And so he disrupted her life in a pretty profound way on purpose because the goodness of God pursues us. Perhaps you felt the presence of Jesus and his uh, desire to be with you. Perhaps in your life you felt those disruptive moments where he simply invites himself in and disturbs things just a little bit. I suggest to you this morning, that is a profound example of the goodness of God. That we serve and love a God who doesn't take the easy road around Samaria, but because we're in it, he has to go through it. The second way we see the goodness of God is that God is in the business of restoration. That God is good because he restores. So some of this will be familiar to you. But Jesus shows up at this well and he meets a woman. And we'll find out later. Perhaps we already read it. I can't, I can't remember that. It's at a certain time of day this is happening, right? And basically what the author is pointing out is that this is not the time of day that anyone is hanging out at a well. It's in the middle of the day. It's the hottest part of the day. It's not the time that anyone would ordinarily be at the well. And yet this woman is here. And we'll find out later in the story, she's there because she's ostracized by society. She's there because she can get water by herself without being bullied or looked down on or, or um, put aside by the rest of her village. And Jesus is pursuing her because he intends to restore her. He's not put off by the baggage of her past. He's not put off by her bio. He's not put off by her litany of poor decisions and the destruction that it has brought. He's bent on her restoration. Now, many of you have heard that before. Let me, let me go just a step further than that because I think that this story is not just about a personal interaction with Jesus and a woman at the well, but it's meant to have uh, distinct cultural ramifications, right? Jesus is here not simply to have this interaction with this woman and for her to be restored. He's there to demonstrate his restoration of the world. And so what is about to happen is two pretty profound things. The first thing is that Jesus is hanging out with a woman by herself, right? In that culture, this stuff didn't happen. Uh, there was a great divide between men and women, uh, and socially, it was, you know, frowned upon. It's not just that she was Samaritan, it was that she was a woman, and yet we find Jesus giving her 
the humanity and the, and the value that she rightly deserves as an image bearer of God. That things are shifting and changing. And on this and many other things, we have a redemptive trajectory that points to the reality that Paul would later say about Jesus, in Christ there is no male or female. This does not, of course, mean that gender doesn't matter. Of course it matters. It's part of God's creative work. But valuing them differently or holding one above the other or giving one more significance or value is anathema to the gospel. And we see this happening already, this new creation, redemptive, restoring work of God where Adam and Eve are together and Jesus interacts with this woman. But even more than that, how this story is going to end, and we probably won't get to read this all the way at the end, but how this story is going to end is pretty compelling. The woman is going to embrace Jesus' message. I'm giving you all the good stuff right up front. And she's going to run back to her village, and she's going to tell everyone in her village all about Jesus. And they're going to come out, and they're going to receive the message. And then while this is happening, the disciples of Jesus who have, have gone out to buy food or whatever they're doing are going to come back. And then on the heels of that, these people are going to invite Jesus and his disciples to come into their community, and they're going to stay there for a period of time. Do you see what's happening culturally in this moment? That these two groups of people who are ostracized from each other are finding commonality in Christ and sharing true community that they were always meant to share. That this story is certainly about the personal rescue of a woman. We need not strip that from it at all. But it is also about the cosmic restoration that God brings through Jesus and the gospel. Incredible. How do we see the goodness of God? He is bent on restoration time and time again. The third way we see the goodness of God is that he offers the fullness of life. Let's keep reading. Uh, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. We've talked about this, right? Verse 10, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink... You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. This well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, listen, everyone who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus asked this woman for water. Why? He probably is thirsty. And it's hot and it's the middle of the day. All of this is real and intentional and important. 
But he also asks her for this drink of water because he's playing on the reality of our basic human needs to draw deeper into our souls to ask if there isn't actually an even greater longing in us that needs to be satisfied. Of course, the psalmists have done this long before Jesus walked the earth, constantly drawing on these parallels of hearts longing for something deeper, thirsting and desiring for that thirst to be quenched in their pursuit of God. Jesus is asking, listen, your water would help quench my thirst, but I'm wondering, if you actually knew who I was, you would ask me for the thing that could quench the thirst of your soul. And he uses this word living water, um, which doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but in that day would have made a whole lot of sense. Because living water was thought to be the water that came down deep, from down deep in the earth. That was kind of like the source of the water. And that's why the woman is talking about how deep the well is. And he doesn't even have a jar, let alone the ability to go further deep to get this stuff. And yet Jesus is once again... <laughs> taking a concept and giving it a deeper, more spiritual meaning. To try to figure out what he's talking about, she asks him a pretty pointed question. She says, are you suggesting that you're greater than Jacob? Now, we can read this in passing, and yet this is a profoundly significant question. And I would suggest it's exactly the right question for her to ask in this moment. You see, this well here at Sikar was a well that was dug by Jacob. And Jacob was the father not only of the Samaritan people, but of all of Israel. God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. He was the one who realized and embraced the promise that God had given to his father Isaac and originally to his grandfather Abraham, that from Abraham God would make a great nation. It was Jacob and his sons that then became the leaders of the tribes that would become this great nation. And so this well is not just a place in the middle of a village where you can get some water. It's incredibly symbolic about the promise of God to his people. And she's saying to Jesus, listen, if there's any well that's going to give us identity, if there's anything that's symbolically going to give us value or meaning, it's this one. Are you suggesting that you're greater than our father Jacob? Now, we're not there to see what happens in this moment, but perhaps Jesus chuckles under his breath, knowing full well, yeah, I actually am far greater than Jacob. But this question is profound for her and for us because it unlocks the questions Jesus is actually trying to get at. This has never been about water. This has always been about true soul satisfaction, meaning, identity, value. And for these people, and for all of Israel, they had found their meaning as being children of Jacob, children of Abraham. And they were standing on that against all other things to find their place in life and their meaning and their satisfaction. 
And her question is not simply, can Jesus dig a deeper well to get more water? But can he dig a deeper well that gives a greater identity than Jacob? And of course, the answer is yes. That's the whole thing I've been coming to tell you. Because at the core of the gospel message that we've been talking about through this whole series, that Jesus is the rightful, victorious, eternal king who has brought peace to the world through his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. At the core of this reality is the truth that Jesus is better. He's better than Jacob. He's better than Isaac. He's better than Abraham. He's better than Moses. He's better than David, and ultimately, he's better than Adam, the originator of humanity. That Jesus does dig a deeper well that gives us meaning. So, let me put this in language we can understand. Because my guess is we don't come this morning with these kind of questions for Jesus. Are you greater than Jacob? But we do come with pretty similar questions. Because we have been searching for contentment and satisfaction and identity and purpose and meaning our whole existence. And we've found it in bits and pieces, but it is all a house built, as Jesus would later say, on sand. And at the core of our hearts is the deep theological question Is Jesus actually good? Is God actually good? For many of us, we're probably willing to admit that God is great, powerful, sovereign. We're probably willing to admit that God is glorious. But where the rubber meets the road for most of us is, in His greatness and His glorious, is He actually good? See, for me. Or am I just a pawn in his bigger game? Come what may. And so as he offers us proverbially this morning living water, my question to him is, can you dig deeper wells than the one from which I've been drawing water? Are you greater than vocation? Are you greater than the meaning I can get from my work? Are you greater than money, the security I can get from a bank account and possessions? Are you greater than relationships, than marriage, either existing or pursuit thereof? Family, children, identity, status, sex, All of the places we look to for satisfaction in our soul. The question we are really asking Jesus, though we struggle to enunciate it, either out of humiliation or not being able to put our finger on it, is, okay, Jesus, are you actually better than these things? And Jesus, in answering her question, doesn't come right at it, does he? He doesn't say, of course I'm better than Jacob. Silly. He 
says, listen, what I'm offering you is living water, he says, that leads to eternal life. And here is how Jesus answers the goodness question. Now, pause with me for a minute, because uh, in our modern day understanding of this concept of eternal life, which is a deeply Johannine, right? It's John's gospel who really talks about eternal life. It's, it's foundational to understanding his whole letter and foundational to understanding this particular story. In our modern understandings of eternal life, what we've done is we've compartmentalized it um, pretty significantly. And in so doing, I would suggest we've actually robbed it of its satisfaction-giving ability. Right? We've robbed it of its life-giving ability. And here's how. For many of us, we've understood this term, eternal life, as something that is uh, future and something that is about a great expanse of time. And what I would suggest to you this morning is both of those statements are true. It's just not a complete definition of what Jesus is talking about. Because while it is future, it is also equally now. And while it is about quantity or expanse of time, it also distinctly is about quality of life experience. That when Jesus makes this statement, he is not saying to her, listen, of course I'm greater than Jacob. How do you know? Because when you die, you can go to heaven. Now, that's, I am not saying that to belittle that truth. We hold deeply onto that truth, and it's significant to us. We believe it. But he's offering her something in the moment that is going to satisfy the depths of her soul, not just a ticket to satisfaction sometime in the postmortem future. And to figure out what eternal life is, we need to keep reading in the Gospel of John. Because he keeps talking about it. All the way until we get to John chapter 17, where Jesus is famously praying. And he prays to the Father something significant. And in this prayer, he gives us a definition of eternal life. He says, now this is eternal life. That they would know you, that being the Father... And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus does not define eternal life in any way uh, about time, right? It has nothing to do with time. It has everything to do with a knowing and intimate relationship. This is the eternal life that God is offering us, and that Jesus is offering this Samaritan woman in this moment has everything to do with the presence of God. It has nothing to do with us someday getting transported to the presence of God. Much more so, it has everything to do with God's presence coming near to us now, so that in the future we will always be with Him. So what is the living water that leads to this eternal life? It's Jesus. Jesus is the living water. She has to drink him. He'll get into some pretty bold language a little bit later in John. He's like, once you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. What's he saying? We're going to be cannibals? Of course not. He's saying, I'm the means. I'm the means to this. The gospel unlocks this. 
And it's in our union with Jesus that the presence of God is proximate to us in all the circumstances of life. Our highs, our lows, our bads, our goods, in everything God walks near and close and with us. And it's in leaning into that relationship as challenging as it is at times that we find satisfaction. That we find meaning, purpose, contentment, true identity. And so all of our effort, listen, we've got to do lots of things in this life. I'm not calling you to that. But as much as we can of our effort should be in cultivating this life-giving relationship with the Father through Jesus. That's how we do it. And that's how you build a house on a rock. So that storms don't come? Of course not. So that when they do come, the presence of God sustains you. That's eternal life. It's not playing a harp floating around on clouds sometime in the future. Though maybe that will happen. We don't exactly know what heaven is. We long for it and we embrace it. It's true. But eternal life is as much now as it is then. If we deny that, then what we're really saying is that God is holding out on us. Offering something to us and not really giving it. We've got a dog, Nora, and she loves food. We had this incredible lunch yesterday. Rachel's whole extended family was there, and there was, was, uh, if you know anything about me, you're going to know that I was just salivating, right? There was... There was roast beef, uh, brisket, there was mashed potatoes, there was gravy, and there was noodles. Noodles, so you could just, they just kept coming and they were piled all over my plate and they were delicious. And Nora is like creeping up on my lap, and all of a sudden, before you know it, her head's under my arm on this side. And so I decided I'm going to give her some of these noodles, which is a huge gift from someone like me, right? Noodle, the, the distribution of noodles is hard for me to do. I need to eat them. And so, she, so I put a noodle on my fork, and I hold it out in front of her, right? And she's, her eyes are getting big, and she's getting closer to it and closer to it. And, and then she opens her mouth, and I pull it away, right? And everyone's like, oh, no. And then, of course, I give it to her. For many of us, this is our picture of God, right? Oh, yeah, you want to be close to us. You come near to us. You let us up onto your lap. And then he's just holding something in front of us, saying, you'll get it sometime. That's not the gospel. And that's not eternal life. And that's why for many of us, we have a dry and arid relationship with God that does not give us life or satisfaction because we're just holding out for someday when he is trying to redemptively disrupt us now by his presence through Christ. And this is why Jesus says greater things will happen when the Spirit comes and I go, because suddenly it's not contained to one human form of the Spirit is everywhere, disruptively invading us with the presence of God. Perhaps you were like Augustine, restless, looking all over the place for meaning and satisfaction. 
Jesus offers true life. Not life that starts later, though we long for his full restoration and we hold on to it. Listen to me, I'm not denying any of that as truth. It is. But he offers it to us now. And the good gift that he offers us is the presence of God. And what could be more profoundly good than that? So the woman, um, Jack, you can put the verses up. I probably won't stop and read. The woman uh, says to Jesus, how does the woman respond to Jesus? She's kind of, she's figured this out because later on she'll go on and start talking about, well, listen, uh, if you're really the Messiah, then where are we going to worship? Right, remember this? He's like, because we worship on this mountain, but you Jews worship on that mountain. And Jesus is like, listen, the time is coming where we're not going to worship on mountains. We worship in spirit and truth. This is the whole same discussion about the proximity of God. God comes off the mountain in Jesus. His presence is with us. So we understand she's tracking with him by asking the right kinds of questions, right? So Jesus offers her this eternal life, and she's like, sir, I'll take it, right? Like, I want it. Give it to me, right? And so what do we think Jesus would say next? Absolutely. Here you go. And yet he doesn't. Because the fourth thing I want to suggest to you about the goodness of God is that God in his goodness oftentimes needs to expose our brokenness so that we can fully taste his goodness. He's made this bold proclamation of eternal life. The woman comes up front to the altar, right? She raises her hand to accept Jesus. She's there for the taking. And he's like, wait a minute. Verse 16. Verse 15. The woman says, sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty. and I don't have to keep coming. I need it. Verse 16, Jesus says, "Uh, go call your husband and then come back. She says, I have no husband, verse 17. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that. The fact is, you've had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Is Jesus really that cruel? (laughs) He gets her to this moment of decision, and she's like, yes, I want it. And he's like, oh, go get your husband. Knowing full well that he's pulling the curtain back on all of this humiliation. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But part of that kindness is shining at times a bright light on our brokenness. Why is the woman drawing water in the heat of the day? Why is she an outcast? She's been sexually promiscuous. She's had all kinds of marriages. Or what we could possibly say is she's been looking for satisfaction in a lot of ways and finding it not to be true living water. Jesus knows she's ready to receive it, but for her to really get it, He needs to disrupt just a little bit more in his goodness. And here's why. 
Because our sinfulness is born out of our search for satisfaction in places apart from God. That's where it generates from. If you're looking for a source, that's it. At the core of our choices towards sin and rebellion is our answer to the question, is God good, being no. So I have to look elsewhere. And what sin, of course, does is it reverses all of these things that we've announced that, that are good about God. Sin takes what God has made that is good and it breaks it. It does violence to it. It separates people. It puts people against each other. And it separates us from God. It puts Him far off. And in so doing, it robs us of life and meaning and satisfaction. Jesus is basically saying to this woman, if you're really going to embrace the living water I offer, you're going to have to do business with the places you've been looking for satisfaction elsewhere. Because if you don't, then you won't taste this for what it truly is. Here's the thing about God. Right? He says that he is oftentimes redemptively disruptive. Right? No more than this moment. Now thank goodness for this woman there's not a huge crowd, but sometimes our sin is public. And sometimes God simply reveals it to us in the moment. Whenever he does, we are guilt-riddled people because we know it's true. But let me assure you that God's purpose in exposing it is not to humiliate. And it is not to destroy. Remember John 10.10? 10, the enemy comes to steal and destroy. Right? But I come so that you might have life and life to the fullest. Look nowhere else than the famous story in the garden when Adam and Eve, because they fail to believe that God is good, look for satisfaction elsewhere in another tree of life. And when they do, they're exposed. Right? And they see their nakedness. And they hear the voice of God. And God comes to them. And before he does anything else, he does something profound. Do you remember what he does? He covers them. Why? Because even in exposing our brokenness, his intention is to cover us and to restore us. And his intention with this woman is exactly the same. God's goodness is not just that he pursues us, it is not just that he's out to restore us and all things. It's not just that he offers us true life, eternal life. But his goodness is also profoundly seen in the reality that he exposes us to our brokenness so that we can honestly grapple with it. Here's the gospel, friends. That in Jesus, God is restoring all things. 
that in Jesus, God has come near to all of us, and he's offered us eternal life now and future. And anyone in their right mind who's heard this correctly would answer just like the woman answered, I'll take it. Yes, it's what my soul longs for. But Jesus says, okay, if you want it, then here's what you need to do. All the way back to our first sermon. How do you respond to the gospel? You repent and you believe. By repent, we've said we need to depose the kings and the queens that are reigning in our lives. Look how the story ends. Jackie put the verse up on the screen. It says, the woman, leaving her jar, goes back to the town to talk to the people. Now, this is significant, right? Because she's come this whole way to get water, and now she's left her jar. But what I want to suggest to you is that the jar represents much more in this moment than just the tool by which she was going to draw water to drink from. By laying it down at this moment after all of this has been exposed and going back to the village that has rejected her, what she's doing is dealing deeply with her old life. She's leaving the jar, leaving the means by which she used to look for satisfaction the means by which she used to look for contentment and meaning. And instead, turning to Jesus. So we finish this morning with this question. Jesus has met us. He has shown us that he is good and that life is found only in him. We want it. What must you leave behind in order to fully embrace it? Or as one of the authors of the New Testament says, how will you deal with the sin that so easily entangles you? We must be in the work of ongoing and actively deposing the would-be kings and queens of our lives. The places that we have looked to for satisfaction and meaning. And in deposing them, turned to Jesus and the warm embrace of approximate Father God and His presence with us and cultivate that relationship to find the rest that our souls long for. If we do not do the hard work of dealing with the old vessels of drawing water, then all the gospel will be for us is a theological proposition that we say yes or no to, and perhaps wait for the future about. But if you want the life that is being promised to you now, then you've got to do the hard work of setting aside the sin that so easily entangles so that you can embrace 
the life that God offers in Jesus. Friends, God is good. You don't have to look elsewhere. My guess is many of you came here already knowing and believing that. What does it mean for us to leave the jar behind? Can I pray with you?